Section 34 of Old and New Masters by Robert Lind. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Tales of Mystery Mr. Joseph Conrad is a writer with a lore. Every novelist of genius is that, of course, to some extent. But Mr. Conrad is more than most. He has a lore like some lost shore in the tropics. He compels to adventure. There is no other living writer who is sensitive in anything like the same degree to the sheer mysteriousness of the earth. Every man who breathes, every woman who crosses the street, every wind that blows, every ship that sails, every tide that fills, every wave that breaks, is for him alive with mystery, as a lantern is alive with light, a little light in an immense darkness. Or perhaps it is more subtle than that. With Mr. Conrad it is as though mystery, instead of dwelling in people and things like a light, hung around them like an aura. Mr. Kipling communicates to us aggressively what our eyes can see. Mr. Conrad communicates to us tentatively what only his eyes can see, and in so doing gives a new significance to things. Occasionally he leaves us puzzled as to where in the world the significance can lie, but of the presence of this significance, this mystery, we are as uncannily certain as of some noise that we have heard at night. It is like the mana which savages at once reverence and fear in a thousand objects. It is unlike mana, however, in that it is a quality not of sacredness, but of romance. It is as though, for Mr. Conrad, a ghost of romance inhabited every tree and every stream, every ship and every human being. His function in literature is the announcement of this ghost. In all his work there is some haunting and indefinable element that draws us into a kind of ghost-story atmosphere as we read. His ships and men are, in an old sense of the word, possessed. One might compare Mr. Conrad in this respect with his master, his master at least in the art of the long novel, Henry James. I do not mean that in the matter of his genius Mr. Conrad is not entirely original. Henry James could no more have written Mr. Conrad's stories than Mr. Conrad could have written Henry James's. His manner of discovering significance in insignificant things, however, is of the school of Henry James. Like Henry James, he is a psychologist in everything down to descriptions of the weather. It can hardly be questioned that he has learned more of the business of psychology from Henry James than from any other writer. As one reads a story like Chance, however, one feels that in psychology Mr. Conrad is something of an amateur of genius, while Henry James is a professor. Mr. Conrad never gives the impression of having used the dissecting knife and the microscope and the test tubes as Henry James does. He seems rather to be one of the splendid guessers. Not that Henry James is timid in speculations. He can sally out into the borderland and come back with his bag of ghosts like a very hero of credulity. Even when he tells a ghost story, however, and the turn of the screw is one of the greatest ghost stories of literature, he remains supremely master of his materials. He has an efficiency that is scientific as compared with the vaguer broodings of Mr. Conrad. Where Mr. Conrad will drift into discovery, Henry James will sail more cunningly to his end with chart and compass. One is aware of a certain deliberate indolent hither and thitherness in the psychological progress of Mr. Conrad's under-western eyes, for instance, which is never to be found even in the most elusive of Henry James's novels. 
Both of them are, of course, in love with the elusive. To each of them a bird in the bush is worth two in the hand. But while Henry James's bird perches in the cultivated bushes of botanical gardens, Mr. Conrad's calls from the heart of natural thickets, often from the depths of the jungle. The progress of the streamer up the jungle river in heart of darkness is symbolic of his method as a writer. He goes on and on, with the ogres of romance always lying in wait round the next bend. He can describe things seen as well as any man, but it is his especial genius to use things seen in such a way as to suggest the unseen things that are waiting round the corner. Even when he is portraying human beings, like Flora de Barrel, the daughter of the defalcating financier and wife of the ship's captain, who is the heroine of chance, he often permits us just such glimpses of them as we would get of persons hurrying round a corner. He gives us a picture of disappearing heels as the portrait of a personality. He suggests the soul of wonder in a man not by showing him realistically as he is, so much as by suggesting a mysterious something hidden, something on the horizon, a shadowy island seen at twilight. One result of this is that his human beings are seldom as rotund as life. They are emanations of personality rather than collections of legs, arms, and bowels. They are, if you like, ghostly. That is why they will never be quoted like Hamlet and my Uncle Toby and Sam Weller. But how wonderful they are in their environment of the unusual! How wonderful is seen in the light of the strange eyes of their Creator! Having grown extremely sensitive, an effective irritation of the tonalities, I may say, of the affair, so the narrator of chance begins one of his sentences and it is not in the invention of new persons or incidents but in just such a sensitiveness to the tonalities of this and that affair that mr conrad wins his laurels as a writer of novels he would be sensitive i do not doubt to the tonalities of the way in which a waitress in a lyons tea-shop would serve a lumpy-shouldered city man with tea and toasted scone his sensitiveness only becomes matter for enthusiasm, however, when it is concerned with little man in conflict with destiny, when, bared down to the immortal soul, he grapples with fate and throws it, or is beaten back by it, into a savage of the first days. Some of his best work is contained in the two stories, Typhoon and the Secret Sharer, the latter of which appeared in the volume called Twixt Land and Sea and each of these is a fable of man's mysterious quarrel with fate told with the conrad sensitiveness the dark conrad irony and the conrad zest for courage these stories are so great that while we read them we almost forget the word psychology we are swept off our feet by a tide of heroic literature each of the stories complex though mr conrad's interest in the central situation may be is radically as heroic and simple as the story of jack's fight with the giants, or of the defense of the roundhouse in Kidnapped. In each of them the soul of man challenges fate with its terrors. It dares all, it risks all, it invades and defeats the darkness. Typhoon was, I fancy, not consciously intended as a dramatization of the struggle between the soul and the prince of the power of the air. But it is, because it is eternally true as such a dramatization that it is, let us not shrink from praise, one of the most overwhelmingly fine short stories in literature. It is the story of an unconquerable soul, even more than of an unconquerable ship. One feels that the ship's struggles have angels and demons for spectators. As time and again the storm smashes her, and time and again she rises alive out of the pit of the waters, 
They are an affair of cosmic relevance as the captain and the mate cling on, watching the agonies of the steamer. Opening their eyes, they saw the masses of piled-up foam dashing to and fro amongst what looked like fragments of the ship. She had given way, as if driven straight in. Their panting hearts yielded before the tremendous blow, and all at once she sprang up again to her desperate plunging, as if trying to scramble out from under the ruins. The seas and the dark seemed to rush from all sides to keep her back where she might perish. There was hate in the way she was handled, and a ferocity in the blows that fell. She was like a living creature thrown to the rage of a mob, hustled terribly, struck at, borne up, flung down, leaped upon. It is in the midst of these blinding, deafening, whirling, drowning terrors that we seem to see the captain and the mate as figures symbolic of Mr. Conrad's heroic philosophy of life. He, the mate, poked his head forward, groping for the ear of his commander. His lips touched it, big, fleshy, very wet. He cried in an agitated tone, Our boats are going now, sir. And again he heard that voice, forced and ringing feebly, but with a penetrating effect of quietness in the enormous discord of noises, as if sent out from some remote spot of peace beyond the black wastes of the gale. Again, he heard a man's voice, the frail and indomitable sound that can be made to carry an infinity of thought, resolution and purpose, that shall be pronouncing confident words on the last day, when the heavens fall and justice is done. Again he heard it, and it was crying to him, as if from very, very far. All right. Mr. Conrad's work, I have already suggested, belongs to the literature of confidence. It is the literature of great hearts braving the perils of the darkness. He is imaginatively never so much at home as in the night, but he is aware not only of the night but of the stars. Like a cheer out of the dark comes that wonderful scene, in the secret sharer in which, at infinite risk, the ship is sailed in close under the looming land in order that the captain may give the hidden manslayer a chance of escaping unnoticed to the land. This is a story in which the tonalities of the affair are much more subtle than in Typhoon. It is a study in eccentric human relations, the relations between the captain and the manslayer, who comes naked out of the seas, as if from nowhere one tropical night, and is huddled away with his secrets in the captain's cabin. It is for the most part a comedy of the abnormal, an ironic fable of splendid purposeless fears and risks. Towards the end, however, we lose our concern with nerves and relationships and such things, and our hearts pause as the moment approaches when the captain ventures his ship in order to save the interloper's life. That is a moment with all romance in it. As the ship swerves round into safety just in the nick of time, we have a story transfigured into the music of the triumphant soul. Mr. Conrad, as we see in Freya of the Seven Isles and elsewhere, is not blind to the commonness of tragic ruin tragic ruin against which no high-heartedness seems to avail. He is indeed inclined rather than otherwise to represent fate as a monstrous spider, unaccountable, often maleficent, hard to run away from. But he loves the fantastic comedy of the high heart which persists in the heroic game against the spider till the bitter end. His youth is just such a comedy of the peacockry of adventure amid the traps and disasters of fate. All this being so, it may be thought that I have underestimated the flesh-and-blood qualities in Mr. Conrad's work. I certainly do not want to give the impression that his men are less than men. They are as manly men as ever breathed. 
but Mr. Conrad seldom attempts to give us the complete synthesis of a man. He deals rather in aspects of personality. His longer books would hold us better if there were some overmastering characters in them. In reading such a book as Under Western Eyes, we feel as though we had here a precious alphabet of analysis, but that it has not been used to spell a magnificent man. Worse than this, Mr. Conrad's long stories at times come out as awkwardly as an elephant being steered backwards through a gate. He pauses frequently to impress upon us not only the romance of the fact he is stating, but the romance of the circumstances in which somebody discovered it. In Chance and Lord Jim, he is not content to tell us a straightforward story. He must show us at length the processes by which it was pieced together. This method has its advantages. It gives us the feeling, as I have said, that we are voyaging into strange seas and harbors in search of mysterious clues. But the fatigue of reconstruction is apt to tell on us before the end. One gets tired of the thing just as one does of interviewing a host of strangers. That is why some people fail to get through Mr. Conrad's long novels. They are books of a thousand fascinations, but the best imagination in them is by the way. Besides this, they have little of the economy of dramatic writing, and are profusely descriptive, and most people are timid of an epic of description. Mr. Conrad's best work, then, is to be found, I agree with most people in believing, in three of his volumes of short stories, in Typhoon, Youth, and Twixt Land and Sea. His fame will, I imagine, rest chiefly on these, just as the fame of Wordsworth and Keats rests on their shorter poems. Here is the pure gold of his romance, written in terms largely of the life of the old sailing ship. Here he has written little epics of man's destiny, tragic, ironic, and heroic, which are unique in modern, and it is safe to say, in all, literature. End of section 34